All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Great. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here this morning. Um, we're in a series uh, that we're calling Bible 101, and this is actually week 15. Um, the series ends next week, just in case you're curious. But uh, we've been looking through the book of Colossians, and we've been learning how to study the Bible. It's one of the things that disciples of Christ need to have the skill to do, to be able to look at the text, to be able to interrogate the text, to be able to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you as you're in God's Word, and to know uh, how to uh, evaluate what God wants you to do in relation to the text. Now, we've been talking about four C's, and there's not many slides today, but we've been talking about four C's. Uh, what do we see, the content? What's the context? What did it mean to them? Today, we're going to look at connection. Once I evaluate what happened, what they're saying, what the truth is, how do I bring that forward to the 21st century? How do I look at the text and decide if that's a truth that is timeless for all time or if it was a truth that was there for the audience at the time? Now, we've been learning also as we study Colossians that Paul has been warning them about false teachers. And basically, his message is, look, if you can allow the love of God to pour out from the throne of God onto you and then onto others, you'll solve a lot of issues in your life. And last week we talked about how God's love is poured out from the throne of God. We soak in it and then we share it with one another as a church family. And we talked about how our sharing our love with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the most powerful witnessing tools that we have. That the reason we come to church every week other than to worship God and to learn more is so that we can love each other. And when people see the love we have for one another, they're drawn to it. And today, Paul's going to say, and there's another place you need to pour out that love, not just to your church family, but to your own family. And so we're going to look today at how this text travels. How does the truth of what Paul teaches to a first century Colossian audience apply to us today? How do we bring the passage home? And one of the questions you need to ask yourself as you're thinking about reading Scripture is who determines the meaning of Scripture? Who determines the meaning of something that's written? Is it the author or is it the reader? It's an interesting question when you first think about it. It's a critical question that many Christians never actually ask. They often approach the Bible with the question, what does this text mean to me? How do I interpret this text? What, what do I think is the truth that's in this text? As if the meaning of the text is determined by the reader. And that's where many of us make our flaw, and that's how we open ourselves up to all kinds of crazy biblical interpretations. Because we look at each other and we go, okay, well, what, what is the truth to me? What do I believe that text is saying? The question we should ask is this, what is the truth that God's already placed in that text? What truth is already there? And only after we've clearly identified that truth, what we've been calling the timeless truth, the eternal truth, the gold that's in the scripture, then and only then can we say, okay, now how does that apply to us and does it apply to us? But you see, the issue is not so much letting the reader determine the meaning. Think, for instance, of the parable of the prodigal son. There's an interesting thing they did. They took 100 North American students and they took 100 Russian readers, and they asked them to read the same parable and tell the story. American readers 
basically only six of them mentioned the famine that the prodigal son had to live through. Only six Americans. 42 out of, uh, 84 out of 100 Russians talked mostly about the famine. To the Americans, it was an afterthought. Yeah, there was a famine and then he couldn't eat and blah, blah, blah. But to the Russians who'd actually lived through famines, that was a big part of the story for them. They recognized the importance of famine and their cultural context was brought to the scriptures. Let me make it a little easier. Remember when I said context rules? That you've got to understand the context of the scripture. Let me give you an example. If you don't know the context of the Wizard of Oz, okay, you're going to miss the meaning of the Wizard of Oz. The meaning of the Wizard of Oz is controlled by the writer, not the reader. L. Frank Baum is the writer of The Wizard of Oz. So if you want to know what The Wizard of Oz is about, you've got to ask the author. If you want to know what the, Holy, oh, the Scriptures are about, you need to ask the Holy Spirit. The writer is the one who put the truth in the message. Now, The Wizard of Oz is a nice story. Dorothy overcame ob ob uh, obstacles with help from her friends. She overcame the bad guys. If you ask the reader, they go, wow, that's a really nice children's story. Isn't that just a wonderful children's story? Now, I have a confession here. I've never actually seen The Wizard of Oz. Um, you know when the munchkins come out and the lollipops? I never get past that. I just, when they come out, I'm like, okay, I've got something else to do. I don't know what it is. I've got to clean the toilets. There's got to be something else I can do. I just can't sit through this. I've never seen The Wizard of Oz. But when those bunch can, anyway, all right. But if you ask L. Frank Baum, the writer of The Wizard of Oz, you might get a completely different idea of what that story is really about. The huge issue facing the American government at the time The Wizard of Oz was written was whether or not we should have a gold standard currency or a silver standard currency. That was the big deal. All the papers, all the presidential races. Should our economy be based on gold or silver? The U.S. government up to this point had been based on gold, but there was a huge move to move it to silver. Now, you may not know this, but L. Frank Baum was a political writer of the newspapers. The person who wrote and did the illustrations was a political cartoonist for the newspaper. There, when the stage version came out two years later, they added all kinds of political ideas to the stage version of the Wizard of Oz. They talked about how J.D. Rockefeller provided the oil needed by the Tin Man. The scholars found political references in Baum's work all the time. These two guys were political authors and cartoonists, and they wrote a story. And the story meant something to them, but when it went out to the public, it became a crazy children's story. Now, here's what it was about. It was an immediate success, and once Baum realized that he had produced a children's story almost by accident, he said, okay, it's a children's story. I meant to do that. But context rules. And remember that the meaning holds to the author, not the reader. Follow the yellow brick road was a reference to the idea of following gold as the standard. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. Okay, and so that was the idea of the gold standard. And Dorothy follows it, and she comes to a wizard who she decides and understands is a fraud. The gold road is a dead end. 
Dorothy's real hope laid in her shoes. Her silver shoes. If you read the original Wizard of Oz, Dorothy had silver shoes. When the TV version came out, the movie version in 1932, they changed them to red shoes, scarlet shoes, because they showed up better on television. But the original was silver. The book was a political satire. Each person representing a segment of society related to the gold standard or the silver standard. Dorothy's power is in her silver shoes. The message was supposed to be, we should switch to silver because gold is a dead end that leads to a wizard that's a fake. The scarecrow was supposed to represent the farmers in the middle of the country that had no brains. The tin woodman was supposed to be the factory workers with no heart. The cowardly lion were the political leaders of the day who never had the courage to actually make a decision. The wicked witch of the east was the east coast establishment. The wicked witch of the west was the west coast establishment. The heroine is Dorothy, who represents the middle class from Kansas using silver. That's what the story's about. Does the meaning belong to the reader or the writer? That's the question. Often you'll go to a Bible study, and people with very good intentions will read a passage, and then they'll turn to you and they'll say, okay, what does that passage mean to you? There's a minute or two of very awkward silence usually. And then somebody says, well, to me, this passage is saying this. To me, this passage means that. Of course, to ask what a passage means is praiseworthy. That's good. But if you think as a Christian, as an individual, you are the starting point for the meaning of the text, you've just influenced it with your Western mindset. We have to avoid the me first idea of reading scripture and understanding it. The question isn't what does it mean to you? The question is what does it mean? What does that text, what did God, the author, say that text meant? And then and only then, how does it apply to me? It's very simply, we have to know that the meaning of the text is determined by God, not us. And the Holy Spirit is our helper to see what God wants to show us but we by no means determine the validity of the text or what it means. The question should be, what is the meaning that God intended in this text? What is the truth that God wanted to communicate to us? And how should I apply that truth to my life? Holy Spirit mentors us and helps us. And I always say it all the time when we come to the scriptures, we need to kneel under them, not stand over them. We submit and we look for God's truth. What we've been calling in this series is the timeless truth. In other words, when we read scripture, there's all kinds of truth in there. You'll read all kinds of things. It's all true. But deep within the text is an eternal truth that God has placed there for us, for those who are willing to dig deeper, for those who are willing to look. There's a truth that God's placed in the text. And that truth applies then, today, in the future. It'll always be true. That's the goal that we're looking for. So how do we connect the meaning from thousands of years ago to today? Well, I want to give you five characteristics of timeless truth. Real quickly, they're nothing huge, and they're things you already know. 
if something is going to be one of those eternal forever truths, the first thing is it has to be biblical. Sounds simple. It's got to be in the Bible. A lot of people apply truths to their lives that they say are true all the time that aren't in the Bible. So step one, a biblical truth has to be in the Bible. Second, it's got to be compatible with the Bible. So a biblical truth is likely going to be repeated numerous times throughout Scripture. You're not just going to find one verse hidden in the corner that you can hold on to. It's going to be repeated because timeless truths are repeated through the historical context of the Bible. The third thing is that it's got to be eternal. That's why it's timeless. It's not limited to a situation. God is love. That's eternal. God loves you. That's eternal. It's not limited to time or space. The fourth thing is it has to be cross-cultural. We've got to be able to apply it in our culture as much as they applied it in their culture. It's got to move forward. And then the last thing is it's applicable. It was applicable to the people who read it in the first century or prior to that, and it's applicable to us. Those are five truths. Biblical, compatible, eternal, cross-cultural, and applicable. We all know that. So in order to bring something forward, if we find a truth in the, Old, or the New Testament and we want to bring it forward, there are two things that we have to do. The first thing we have to do, let me just give you an example of something. The idea of truth, this is sort of an aside, but I want to go into it. You will read a lot of things in Scripture that are true, but are they eternal truths? So let me ask you this. Those of you who are married, how many of you got married by using the Rebecca Campbell test? How many use that? How many picked your spouse based on the Rebecca Campbell test? You don't know the Rebecca Campbell test? The scriptural way to pick a spouse? Nobody knows that? It's true, it was in scripture. Here's what happened. Abraham decided that Isaac needed a wife. He sent Eleazar to go find a wife. Eleazar said, God, how will I know which woman it is? God says, I got a test for you. When you go to the well, there's going to be a woman who not only offers you water, but offers water to your camels as well. That's how you know who it is. It's the Rebecca camel test. So you can go to get the Rebecca camel test and pick your spouse. It's in the scriptures. It's true. But we all know that truth was for that moment in that time in that specific circumstance. It wasn't an eternal truth. It was just a truth. We have to be able to tell the difference between those. So fortunately, there's a lot of truths in the Old Testament and New Testament that we don't apply today because they don't transfer. So we have to identify the timeless truth. And second, if the truth is in the Old Testament, and this is really important, if the truth that you're looking at comes from the Old Testament, you have to look at it through the lens of the New Testament. Jesus said, I came to bring a new covenant. I came to bring a new way of doing things. Jesus often said, you've heard it said, but I say this. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you have to look at it through the lens of the New Testament. Did Jesus modify it? Did he change it? So the question is, there are certain things in the Old Testament that are there. We talked about them, some of the traditions, some of the things. And yet in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, they were true, but they're not to be applied beyond Christ. Christ fulfilled them. You've heard it said, but I say. So when we're looking at truth from the Old Testament, 
We just have to stop for a minute and say, was there anything in the New Testament that changed this truth as it brings forward to us? Once we identify the timeless truth, then we can start thinking about how to bring it home. Unfortunately, many people have not learned how to read the Bible. No one's ever taught them. And they don't understand that there were many truths for them that are not true for us. Let me give you some examples. It was true for them that the elder sister needed to marry before the younger sister. It was true for them that women were to carry water and all their burdens on their shoulders, not their hands. It was true for them that people get off their camels and donkeys as a sign of respect when they greet one another. It was customary for individuals to bow before each other, for parents to choose their son's bride for them, for guests to wash their feet when they came to a home, and to sit around the table in the order of importance or age. Those were all things that were customary to them, things that were true for them. There were dietary restrictions, celebration of the feast, circumcision, women never cutting their hair, women not wearing jewelry, never speaking in church. Those were things that were part of their culture. So as we bring these texts home, we need to ask ourselves, are those eternal truths or are those truths for that time? Now last week we talked about how God's love pours out on the church. And God, Paul is telling the Colossians, look, This love flows from the throne of God. It's poured out on you. You soak in it, and you can't help but pour out to other people. When you come to church, love each other. Forgive each other. Care for each other. They'll know you by my love. When they see you loving each other, they're going to see me. That's how it gets reflected to to them. That's what they're looking for. And now Paul says, oh, by the way, there's another family that needs your love. There's another family that needs to get that love from the throne that you're soaking in. Paul's going to tell him, look, I want you to take that love home. I want you to not just take this love to your church family. I want you to take it home. He says, look, the one thing that defines my people is love. We understand how deeply we're loved, and we can't help but love other people. Look at our nation. Families are in trouble. The American family, for the most part, is seriously struggling. Maybe your family's doing okay, but you know, and you know God has something greater for you. Maybe you've been praying for a tune-up. Maybe your family's all messed up. Maybe they're so far gone, you don't know what to do. Every family in this room has room to grow. But many have strained relationships at home. Many families are at or beyond a breaking point. The family situations in this room alone would break your heart if we shared all of them. They are truly heartbreaking. Marriages that have ended in divorce. Children split between two adults who made a promise to stay together. Parents struggling to maintain stability in the home. Marriages that are stretched, breaking, and in need of repair. Strained relationships with adult and aging parents. Sibling issues. Teenagers with parent frustration. Teenagers that are parents and are frustrated. We pray and we pour out our heart to God. We have sleepless nights. We have anxiety and worry. God, you have to do something. You have to fix my family, God. I need you to step in and change my spouse and change my kids and change my marriage. And God, we need you to change our family. Do something, God. My family is falling apart. We pray for the heart of our spouse to change. We pray that we would get more respect from our children. We pray that our family would just get along. 
Stop fighting and not have all the drama. We pour out our heart to God. Please, God, help. We, we need change. And the passage in Colossians that Paul's going to tell us tells all believers exactly what we need to do to fix our families. It's absolutely crystal clear. God's going to show you and me how to fix our families. No matter how far gone they are, no matter how difficult they are, no matter what's wrong, he's going to show us how to fix all those things in our family that drives us crazy. But you may not like the truth that he reveals or his solution for your family. And you certainly might not like applying it. In our passage, Paul's going to tell the Colossians and us that Christians can build healthy families, that families can be restored and renewed, and the truth that comes from God's word is this. If you truly want long-lasting change in your family, then you must change. That's what God's going to tell us through Paul. You. You may have been praying that God would change your kids, your spouse, your parents, your siblings, but God says, no, the change I want to take home is you. The thing I want to send to your house, the magic, the, the, not the magic, but the, the, the solution, the, the answer is you. You see, because you're the one that's connected to the love from the throne of God. That's you. You're the one soaking in that love. You're the one at church loving each other. And when you go home with that love, and you trust me, I will fix your family. So let's dive into the verse today and take a look. Colossians 3, 18, there are Bibles next to you. They won't be on the screens today, we're having issues. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children unless they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I put some of these out somewhere, uh, the notes from the passage today. And I want you just to notice a few things. There are a few lists here, I think, that are pretty important for us to pay attention to. One is Paul's going to address three groups of people. And I thank Paul for this to teach on because it includes slavery. It includes women submitting. It's really a great topic for pastors to teach on. Two topics that scream for a contextual understanding. Paul mentions three relationships. Now remember, he has just talked about how you receive the love of God. He's just talked about how you're to love your brothers and sisters in Christ at church. And now he turns to three relationships. Your spouse, your children, and your slaves. It's going to be interesting studying these. Because of our idea of slavery and our idea of women. But what Paul says is each of those three, 
is about to be hit by a love bomb. And that love bomb is you. Now, here's the interesting thing. As soon as Paul said, spouse, children, slaves, they would translate that as home. You're talking about my home. In my home, Jewish man, I have a spouse. I have slaves. I have children. They are to obey me. Okay, so just by mentioning that, Paul is now taking the focus and he says, okay, we're going to focus on home. Paul says, I'm going to pour love out on your family. Now, it's important to remember here, Paul is writing to Christ followers. Let me repeat that. Paul is writing to Christ followers. You cannot pour out the love of God through the Holy Spirit if you don't have the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Love is the number one. It's not your love you're pouring out on anybody. Your love got you where you are. What we've been given is the love of God that comes from the throne, the unconditional love of the Father that he pours out on us, that we pour out on our church family, and now we're going to take home. Paul is writing to Christ's followers, Christian husbands, Christian wives, Christian children, Christian masters, Christian slaves. And he's showing how homes that are full of Christians should be different than homes that are not. So let me show you three things that you need to take home if you want to change your family. Come straight from the Word of God in this passage. The first change you and I need to make when we want to go home and change our families is we got to elevate Christ. He's already elevated. we got to elevate Him in our actions, in our words, in the order of things we do. One of the problems of the family is that we've not elevated Christ to the proper position in our homes. Remember, Paul's been talking about Jesus. He's above all things, including your home. Everything was made through him, by him, for him, including your family. In Jesus, all things hold together. If your family's fallen apart, Jesus is what you need to hold it together. And above all else, you're to put on love, which holds everything together. Do you remember from last week? In perfect harmony. If your family is not in harmony, it's a lack of God's love and a need for God's love and to elevate Christ to the place he needs to be in your family. Yet God is not at the center of most families. Sadly, God is not always at the center of Christian families. Look at the repetitive theme here. Fitting in the Lord, pleases the Lord, fearing the Lord, for the Lord, from the Lord, master in heaven. No matter what relationship we're in, our focus should be on the Lord. Our families, our job at home is to first and foremost elevate Christ. Your family, and I don't care what family it is, needs to have Christ preeminent and predominant and his love to be the thing that characterizes your family just like his love characterizes our church family. Now, here's the deal. It starts with you. You may be the only person that can walk God's love into your home. Maybe nobody else is following God. Maybe that's the problem. Okay. But you may be sitting there going, look, I'm not the problem. I go to church. I have the Holy Spirit. I, 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 this is not me. I've been waiting for God to change everybody. My spouse and my kids don't even know Jesus. 
I'm the only one who knows Jesus. I know that no one's praying for my family because I'm the only one praying. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, elevating Christ in your life will help. They don't know Jesus? Then elevate Christ in your life and show him to them. You're the only one who knows Jesus? Then you're the only one who can change your family. If you truly believe that only God can change your family and you're the only one that knows him, then you better elevate him to the best of your ability among your family. You're the only one praying for your family? Join us on Wednesday night. We'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. Turn in a card. We pray for those all week long. Ask other people to pray for your family, that God would change them, that God would allow you to be the light in their darkness. The change your family desperately needs is for you to change. In the name of Jesus. His power, his plan, his promise. Don't wait for everybody else to change. You figure out how you can love Jesus more in your home. Elevate Christ in your life and trust God to change things. That leads to the second change we need to make at home. After we've elevated Christ, we got to elevate others. We've got to elevate the people God has entrusted to us and our families. Paul highlights three relationships that we need to change. Husband, wife, child, father, slave, and master. These were common relationships in Jewish and Roman homes. Social order was extremely important in the first century. Now remember what Paul has just said. He has just finished a passage that we studied in the last couple weeks that has leveled the playing field. There's no Greek or Jew. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. In God's plan, everybody's equal. Those who are oppressed are raised up. Those who are dominant are brought down. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 9, verse 48. For he who is least among you is the one who's great. Paul is sometimes accused of being anti-woman. Many people have that perception because of their Western mindset. Paul didn't like women. Paul said women should submit. Paul was never married. What does he know? Blah, 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 blah. But the weird thing is, he constantly elevates women in his writings. Women should look at Paul as their great champion. Jesus and Paul were the two men in the first century who said women matter. We don't see it because we don't understand first century context. You have to understand that you didn't even mention women in the first century. Just to bring them up was unusual. You told the men what to do, and it was their job to go home and share it with everybody else. The fact that you as a leader or as a teacher would speak directly to a spouse or directly to a slave or directly to a child? No way. It was considered absolutely radical. You didn't give them that standing. You preached to the male of the family, and his job was to teach at home what he decided you needed to know. That's their culture. Just mentioning women was bold. And it's not just that he mentions them, it's the way he elevates them in his writings. Notice that each relationship in this passage is subordinate. Mentioned first, Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 5. Wives, then husbands. Children, then fathers. Slaves, then masters. That's not how you write about people. 
You put the important people first. Remember, we talked about lists. They would have noticed that. They would have said, wait a minute, you talked to the wife? It should have been husband's wives. It should have been father's children. It should have been master's slave. Paul has just flipped them. Remember, that list is important. What you want to elevate, what you want to highlight, you mention first. Paul is taking the order of the day and he's turning it upside down. He mentions wives, children, slaves first, and husbands, fathers, and masters second. Not only does he mention them, he gives advice directly to them. Something you never did. This is huge. I don't know how to explain it anymore. These three subordinates are designed to bring down the authority structure on earth and raise up the authority structure in heaven. Wives are not told just to submit but to submit as is fitting in the Lord. Many people quote this verse and they forget the second part. Children are told to obey in everything for this pleases the Lord. Bond servants or slaves are told to obey in everything with sincere hearts, fearing the Lord, working hard for the Lord, receiving the promise of an inheritance from the Lord, and the promise that those wrongdoers will eventually be paid back. They are not told to disobey earthly authority, but rather to look beyond it and see Jesus as their authority. He elevates by telling people to submit. How many of you guys cringe when you hear the word submit? Let's be honest, right? In the first century, of course a wife would submit to her husband. She had no choice. Of course children would submit or would obey their, they would obey their, their father. Of course they would. They really couldn't imagine it any other way. Their structure was strong in the home. But in the 21st century, this male-dominant oppressive view of women takes the word submission and has strong cultural context for it. Now, let me share with you something. The harmony between man and woman was damaged in the fall. Part of the curse, God says in Genesis, is that women want to dominate men. That's what it says. But Paul says, look, there's this power struggle going on, whether you want to admit it or not, but God has a solution for it. So let me share with you four quick things about human submission that we need to remember. Submission does not cancel our equality. I can be equal with somebody and submit. How do I know that? Because Jesus submitted to the Father and yet was equal with him. Here's the second thing I want you to remember. Everybody submits to somebody. Every one of us right now is submitting to somebody. Submission is a willful choice to relinquish your power, your position, your influence for a greater purpose. That's what it is. It's very noble. Submission can't be demanded. I can't make you submit. You have a choice. You do or you don't. I can't force you to submit. I can force you to obey. can't force you to submit. You control your will. Submission is you laying down your desire to do it your way. Godly submission feels like love. When you decide to submit, to someone else. It's selfless love. 
It requires the presence of Jesus in the relationship. When we hear submission, we think inferior, controlled, dominated, weak. But we agreed to kneel under the text, remember? This passage does not say that women are to submit to men. Let me repeat that about a thousand times. This passage, the Bible, does not say women are to submit to men. What it says is Christian women are to submit to Christian men. Let me repeat that. Christian women are to submit to Christian husbands. Not men, by the way. Husbands. Submit to your husband. It says that your submission comes within the context of the marriage covenant with God at the center. Your husband is a godly leader. You as a Christian woman. With a caveat that everybody forgets. The caveat is, as is fitting in the Lord. Paul gave women the right to not submit to their husbands. That is so crazy radical in the first century. Not only is he speaking to spouses in front of their husbands and not addressing the husband, he tells them, you have a right not to submit. When do you have a right not to submit? When what your husband is asking you to do is not fitting in the Lord. You are to submit to your, you Christian woman, submit to your Christian husband as is fitting in the Lord. What he's saying is, look, if your husband asks you to sin, don't submit. If you're feeling threatened or unsafe, don't submit. When a woman is being subjected to domineering physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, her submission is not appropriate. Her protection of her health and safety and that of her children is more important and fitting in the Lord than to obey the spouse. He is encouraging a submission that's given to the glory of God. It's a voluntary attitude of giving in, of assuming responsibility. It's more about leadership, how you lead the home, than it is about submitting. It says that in Christian marriages, the husband should lead and the wife should empower him to lead. Paul is telling the ladies at Colossae, if your man is a godly man, let him lead. There's a truth here that's often missed. Did you notice in this passage that Paul gives three commands? The first is to the spouse, and he turns to the spouse, speaks directly to them, and says, submit. But when he turns to children and slaves, what does he tell them? Obey. Interesting. Paul tells spouses, submit. He tells children and slaves, obey. What's the difference? Your position. What Paul's telling spouses is, look, you're equal. You're part of a team. You have the standing he has. I'm asking you in the name of Jesus to submit to his leadership if he's following God as a Christian man. Children, you obey. Slaves, you obey. You're not in the same standing. There's a different relationship. Paul, by telling women to submit and everybody else to obey, is validating the importance of women. He's raising women up. 
Being told to obey means it's a directive from somebody else. You don't have a choice. There's consequences if you don't. You're in a dependent relationship, and you have to obey. You feel powerless, and obedience is often driven by fear. Being told to submit means you have a choice. You have an option, a willful decision. You can decide to do it or not. Your relationship is equal. You have an opportunity here to do what God's asking you to do. It's unselfish. It's godly. You will feel empowered. You will feel uh, affirmed. Submission is driven by love. Children and slaves were told to obey. Wives are not slaves. That's what Paul's saying. So with an understanding of first century context, this thing completely changes. Paul speaks to wives, tells them to submit. Unheard of. And what Paul's telling them is, look, Christian families should be known for elevating other people. We should elevate Christ in our home, and we should elevate each other. We should elevate the people God has entrusted to us. And not just the people in our family, but the people who are lowest in society. And he does that by looking at the context of slavery in the first century. Willful submission is one thing. Forced slavery is something else. But there it is. In the Bible, slavery. We look at it from our Western minds and we go, why didn't Paul or Jesus condemn slavery? I can't find it in the Bible. Why do they not condemn slavery? Jesus said he came to set people free. What better people to set free than the slaves? So let me ask you what you think is better. Would it have been better for Jesus to come, condemn slavery and not do anything about it? Or to solve it. The Holy Spirit led Paul neither to condemn or condone slavery. He acknowledges the reality, and then what he said is, look, I'm going to show you how to end it. I'm going to show you that when you pour your love out on other people, when they begin living their relationship with you in Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're their master or their slave, you're both equal under the cross. The theme of the Bible is that every person matters. And what Paul's telling the slaves is, look, you serve Jesus. And what he's telling the master is, look, you obey Jesus. When both of you focus on Jesus, slavery ends. Does that sound naive to you? Since Jesus walked on the planet, every culture where Christianity has become the predominant religion, slavery has ended. You can condemn it or you can solve it. If you want to end slavery, elevate everybody in the lives of those involved. Here's why. You can't truly follow Jesus and enslave another person. It's not possible. When you are truly following Jesus, you'll set people free. You won't be able to hold them in bondage. The relationship will end because of the change. Paul tells Christian slaves to obey their master. With a sincerity in heart, not in lip service, work is unto the Lord. Remember your promise. And the promise is when you pour out your love on your master, 
I'm not going to condemn slavery. I've already said every person's important. What I'm going to say is when you love me and you love others the way I love them, slavery goes away. Nobody talked to slaves. Nobody. You don't address slaves in public. You don't tell them they can do anything. They're property. Paul is looking at these people and he's talking to the slaves. You, slave, obey your master. Master, you behave and you obey. You do what you should do. Nobody talked to slaves. They were property. You could do whatever you wanted to with a slave. It'd be like me telling you to go home and treat your coffee maker nicely. Paul not only addresses them, he elevates them. Not like Christian wives, not only does he mention them, he, he's wrote directly to them. What he's saying is, look, obey your earthly master, but understand they're not your true master. And if that's not radical enough, he says, look, I'll take care of your earthly master if he mistreats you. Trust me, I'll take care of him. And then the throwdown statement, he tells the masters, you better treat your slave in a way that honors them because you have a master in heaven. Hmm. Jesus, Paul, they turned the social structure upside down. Jesus was absolutely radical in his teaching. Paul's teaching Christians to change families by elevating the people in your home. So there it is. Wives submit, children obey, slaves and servants obey. Okay, men, let's go get some wings. We're done. It's great. Yeah, wives obey, children obey, slaves obey. Yeah, and then he turns to the men. He says, Christian families are strengthened when we elevate Christ, when we elevate others, but the Holy Spirit's just getting warmed up here. Paul's about to tread where others dared not travel. Paul addresses the men in a rebuke, in a direct statement to them, in front of the women, in front of the slaves, and in front of the children. Paul's not skipping anybody here. He doesn't just address them, he corrects them on how to manage their families. The thing they take their most pride in. A topic that was off limits in their culture. You didn't tell somebody how to manage their families. In their homes, they had total dominance and total control. And that leads us to the third change. If we want to change families, we've got to elevate Jesus. We've got to elevate others. And then we've got to elevate our attitude. Power is not inherently bad. Power is just influence. That's what power is. It's not a bad thing. It can be used for great things. In our scenario now, Paul turns to those who have power. The men. Husband, father, master. It's usually the same person. And he looks at them, and he knows they have all the power, and power is dangerous when it's used for selfish gain. But when it's used to help others who are weaker, when it helps other people, power begins to be used in the hands of Almighty God to bring about great change. Paul teaches these men, you've been given power by God, you've been given authority by God. 
but you better use it for the benefit and influence of those I've entrusted you and not yourself. You see, because you're all equal. I've given you authority. I've given you power. I've given you responsibility, but you better leverage it for other people because it's not for you. Cultural context in this passage is huge. We're shocked that God told women to submit. We read that passage from our Western mind. I can't believe God told women to submit. The original audience was shocked that God told Christian husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. You see, we project our first century, our 21st century ideas on the first century. We picture marriage the way they pictured it. It's not how it usually was. Often marriages were arranged. Often the man was 5, 10, 15, 20 years older than the woman. Marriage in their culture was more of a social structure and a responsibility than a love fest. It was a survival thing. We need to propagate. We need to have children. We need to work. The family needs a woman in the home and a man in the home. We have work to do. There's things to do. This 21st century idea we have of this sort of love fest thing that happens between a man and a woman may not have existed as much in their culture. Sure, they love their wives. Sure, they love their husbands, but it was a different kind of thing. And Paul turns to them, he says, oh, by the way, husbands, love your wives. We look at that and go, why would you say that? Well, because you need to love your wives. This love poured out from heaven that you poured out on your church family, that you poured out on your slaves and your children, love your wife. Pour out the love as strong on her as anybody. And don't be harsh with them. Women at the time were considered responsible for household chores. They were to be quiet. They were to propagate. Paul begins to teach them something totally different. Husbands, you're to love them. You're to serve them sacrificially. You're to put them first. You're to elevate them. You're to take the power that I've given you and leverage it for their benefit. Not only in your actions, but in your words. Everything you do at home should honor your wife. Don't be harsh with them. Engage with them under the partnership of the covenant of marriage. It's hard for us to even grasp how radical that taught was in that culture. Then Paul tells Christian fathers, elevate your attitude towards your children. Notice that children are instructed here to both obey both parents and everything. But the warning about discouraging them is only addressed to the father. That's very interesting. Both parents, Paul says, you should obey both parents. But then he turns to the father and he says, you don't discourage them. Think about how that would have empowered the wives and children. To have somebody turn to the father and say, you, you, you pour out your love on these people. Encourage them. Don't tear them down. Bob Carlyle wrote a song in 1996 called Butterfly Kisses that many of you have heard. And it talks about the love between a father and his daughter. And he says this, I get a lot of mail from young girls who want me to marry their moms. That used to be a real chuckle because it's so cute. And then I realized they don't want romance for mom. They want the father who's in that song. And that just kills me. Fathers, we've got to use our influence to help our children. 
to pour out our love on our children. They are desperate for God's love, and we may be the only place they ever see it. And then he says, Christian masters, elevate the way you treat your slaves. Treat them justly and fairly. So, here's our assignment this week. If you want to change your family, if you want God's love to pour out on your family and hopefully through your family one day, then you got to change you. You got to elevate Christ. You've got to make him the most important thing in your life so that your family sees that. You've got to be in the word. You've got to be on your knees. You've got to be the spiritual leader in your home. You've got to be able to reflect Christ. Be less concerned about what you say and more concerned about how you live. Your family's watching you to see if coming here makes a difference in your life. If you go home and do the things you've always done, or you go home and you berate your children, or you go home and you're not loving them the way Christ loved you, they're not going to see Jesus. Remember the scripture, when Christ is lifted up, all men are drawn. You want your family to come to Christ, then you lift Christ up in you. That's all you can do. And then you trust God to do the difference. So we've got to elevate Christ. We have to elevate other people. We've got to go home and let them know that we're serving them, that we love them unconditionally, that we are going to pour out God's love on them, and then we've got to elevate our attitude. We've got to bring ourselves down. We've got to get over ourselves. We've got to be willing to do the hard work of loving people in Christ because we've been loved in Christ. So this week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and elevate Christ. Lead a family devotional. Pray with your spouse. Read the Bible out loud together. Tell your children what God means to you. Not in a lecture, just a story. Let me tell you where I was. Let me tell you what's happening. Let your family know that you love Jesus. Don't beat them up with it. Let them know. Find a way this week to selflessly serve your spouse and your children and your family. Christian husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Christian wives, submit to your husband as fitting in the Lord. Parents, don't discourage your children. Find ways to elevate Christ at home. Then go beyond your home and elevate people that everybody else overlooks, the homeless, those who are handicapped, the elderly. Find somebody in your family and maybe go serve together. Elevate Christ, elevate others. And then I want you to elevate your attitude. Find a coworker or somebody that you have been given authority over and diminish your authority. Treat people around you fairly. Go the extra mile to go beyond what's appropriate. Find something that you always leave for other people to do that you know they don't like doing and do it for them. By doing so, you elevate them. I'm not asking you to do something I wouldn't do. <clears throat> the American family's in dire straits. It threatens the essence of our society and our nation. Each week, there's more and more evidence of children who've been damaged, discouraged. Families are crashing. I believe it is the number one reason why our nation's where it is. The deterioration of the Christian family 
generation to generation to generation over time. Rather than lamenting the ills and challenges facing our homes, God gives us a solution. Rather than condemning slavery, he says, here's how you're going to solve it. Rather than lamenting the ills and challenges of families, he says, look, I want you to go home. I want you to take the love that was poured out from the throne of heaven, poured onto you to the point that you couldn't handle it anymore. It overflowed to you. And then I want you to pour it out on the people in your church family. And when it's poured out on all of you and you're still being filled up every day, I want you to go home and pour it out on them. See, now here's the cool thing about getting wet. You can make people wet whether they want to be wet or not. You can go home and pour out God's love on your family and they can't do a darn thing about it. You can go home and say, I'm going to love you in Jesus' name and there's nothing you can do about it. Then you better do it. This week, elevate Christ. Elevate others. Elevate your attitude. And let God do the rest. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. God, sometimes problems can just seem so overwhelming to us. And we keep praying to you to change everything, to fix everything. And yet the thing you're most interested in fixing is us. God, help us to elevate Christ in the home. Help us to be the God, the Father, the Jesus that they've never seen. God, help us to put others more important than ourselves. Help us to serve by kneeling. Help us to focus on not our love, not our conditional love, but the love you've given to us. Help us to grow in the spirit as we abide in you, as we stay closer to you, we grow more love. God, our families are in desperate need of your love. Please use us. Please change us. Please empower us go home and make a difference. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.